my name is Emily Fournier, a marketing specialist here at Workplace Options, and today I'm here to talk to you about grief. What is it, what causes it, and what can be done about it? Later in this episode, I will be joined by Malika Sharma, Director of Bespoke Learning Solutions here at Workplace Options, who will talk us through what those heavy, unwanted thoughts and feelings are all about, what we can do to process them, and how we can heal and move on from or perhaps with them. But before I speak with her, I'd like to examine the importance and relevance of understanding grief in a world of constant loss and change. What's your it? That is the question renowned thought leader and keynote speaker Julia A. Nicholson raises at the start of her TED Talk aptly titled, The Way We Think About Loss and Grief is Dead Wrong. According to Nicholson, this it is something that absolutely every single one of us has in common, even though oftentimes we can't see it, and that it is grief. But as she notes, for too long now, the term grief, and even more so the term mourning, has been used exclusively in the context of death, the loss of a loved one, a friend, or an acquaintance, not due to distance, not due to falling out or a natural moving on, but due specifically to death. And even though the processing such an event requires can surely unfold in a myriad of ways, the terms grief and mourning are almost always understood to occur as a reaction or in the aftermath of death. But as Nicholson goes on to explain, grief is an elusive feeling. It's a hard thing to pin down in and of itself, let alone hard to define or contextualize. Grief can be felt long before, during, or long after a lost or unwanted change. And these troubling events don't need to pertain exclusively to death either. They can include the loss of a marriage or a relationship, the loss of a job or financial stability, the loss of one's health, their physique, the loss of homes and dreams, loss of faith, loss of identity, And perhaps, now more than ever, the loss of a world you thought you knew, a future you once thought was yours, forever out of reach. And I can tell you this much, every single person listening to this podcast, every single person out there in the world, is actively grieving. How can I be so sure? Because, as best-selling author and podcast host and Duke University professor Kate Fowler puts it best, if there are things that we can't change, that's when grief begins. Everyone is grieving for something that they lost over the result of the pandemic. Whether that was the loss of a loved one or just the loss of a life unlived, a path that couldn't be taken, an opportunity that was missed. Even now, people are grieving because, although the phrase is everywhere, whether some people can pinpoint exactly where the source of the change is, normal as we knew it in 2019, is gone forever. Our lives today are the result of an unwanted, unstoppable change. And that's bound to come with huge feelings of loss for so many different reasons. And I think that's something we really need to come to terms with as a key part of our journey to understanding grief because while there always seems to be competition when it comes to mental health, your problems aren't as bad as my problems or my problems aren't as bad as your problems, I think that this is particularly an issue when it comes to grief and how we process it and allow or disallow ourselves to grieve. If you feel a sense of sadness or a sense of loss or emptiness, or if you feel like there's suddenly an absence in your life after you leave a job you loved, whether that's because you needed or wanted to, or whether it was out of your control, these feelings aren't any less valid than those of someone who lost their spouse, or their parents, or their child. The world is big enough to provide a space for their grief and their healing, and your own. But in our society, this just isn't something that's well known, or rather, it's just not something that's believed. A quick Google search on grief generates narrowed articles on dealing with grief for the loss of a, quote, loved one, or the stages of grief, and whether that's five stages or seven stages, and what they are. Even in the U.S., the latest edition of the DSM-5, also known as Psychiatry's Bible, recently included a diagnosis, prolonged grief disorder, 
that categorizes long-term grief as a mental illness that needs to be treated, much to many psychiatrists' chagrin, essentially putting a time frame on how long it's okay to grieve. Even amongst our own social networks, there's a hesitancy to create a space for grief. Not only do we oftentimes fail to acknowledge or offer support for symbolic losses, but we also establish strict boundaries for what can be considered the more acceptable instances of grief, like the loss of a loved one. According to licensed grief counselor Jamie Cannon, we offer pleasantries like, I'm so sorry for your loss, or my condolences, to separate and create distance between what is most important to us from the devastation that someone we know is experiencing. We say things like, let me know if you need anything, or don't hesitate to reach out, to put the ball in the bereaved individual's court, effectively ensuring that their grief remains theirs to deal with and work through, rather than having to face it ourselves. Then, as time passes, we wait for order to be restored, for our friends and family to come out of their bereavement unchanged, their grief processed, packaged, and tucked away as if it were a gift they had no need for and could simply shove in the back of their closet. We ask questions like, are you okay, that only leave room for the affirmative response, and we ostracize those whose answer is the negative, who we perceive to be changed or, quote, not the same as a result of their grief. We lack a response or course of action for when people continue to carry their grief long after we expected them to drop it. But the reality is, it is exactly these collective or societal responses to grief that make it so hard to process and lead to what we perceive as disordered responses to grief. As Eleanor Haley, co-founder of What's Your Grief, explains, grieving people already feel like they're wearing a scarlet letter. Whether or not others know about their loss, they know they're walking around with a hidden dimension that can only be mentioned in specific ways with certain people. At a lack of support and internalization of these notions, that it's weird or abnormal for them to be hanging on to their grief, and suddenly you have a large populace of people who are now repressing or ignoring their grief, thinking it will go away faster by doing so, but really only making it so much worse in the long run. As Joanne Cacciatore, professor at Arizona State University and founder of the Miss Foundation warns, it's when we're shut down and pretend that grief didn't happen and suppress and inhibit our own emotional experiences that we suffer even more. This might include experiencing stress, anxiety, irritability, or restlessness, not necessarily because of the grief that we feel, but because of our internalized impatience or intolerance for it. That's why, in a world of constant loss or unwanted change, it's becoming increasingly necessary that we reconsider how we respond to grief. In fact, I think the case can be made that a lot of the issues that we're dealing with right now, such as burnout, a rise in violence, a mass exodus of workers, rise in depression, suicide, and all these other issues, is perhaps rooted in our collective avoidance of grief, which is ultimately yet another loss for us. As Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor of the University of Arizona discusses in her new book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Loss and Love, there's really something to be gained from shifting our perception of grief as a disordered, abnormal, and depressive state to a form of learning, an adaptive process that helps us to progress and continue on with our lives in a productive and forward-thinking way. As the University of Washington averse, grieving is important because it allows us to free up energy that is bound to the lost person, object, or experience so that we might reinvest that energy elsewhere, adding, until we grieve effectively, we are likely to find reinvesting difficult, a part of us remain tied to the past. Even in the workplace, people might not really care or think too deeply about the loss of the physical, in-person workspace, but their employers do, with many of them grappling with fear and uncertainty about how to move forward which ultimately is a form of grief, dealing with unwanted change. 
And you can see what happens to those employers when they try to swallow and suppress or ignore that grief. They try to force the return to a work environment that just doesn't work for people anymore. They get stuck in the past, they fail to adapt, and their organization suffers as a result. But if these employers could only allow themselves to channel and process their grief, they could get down to the root of what they miss, whether that be people, bonding, or hearing about people's personal lives outside of work, and figure out a way to hone in on those missing aspects of the workplace and cultivate them in a new space, in a new work environment that reflects the adaptations we've had to make and the evolutionary transformation we've undergone in order to survive and continue to function. In fact, grief, like all our emotions, serves an adaptive evolutionary purpose. Contrary to belief, grief is what keeps our head above water rather than keeping us submerged within it. When we allow ourselves to grieve and to learn from that process, we avoid the negative consequences that comes from unprocessed grief, such as depression, anxiety, stress disorders, trouble sleeping and eating or concentrating, and even high blood pressure. As Kate Baller notes, grief is such an important place to stay to help us face the reality of our lives. And I don't mean the terrible reality, just the reality. As Dr. O'Connor echoes, it's our ability to grieve that helps us to answer the question we must inevitably ask ourselves following a loss. How do I live in the world now? None of us are immune to loss. None of us will only experience loss once and never again. Rather, we can expect to experience any number of losses throughout our lifetime. And while facing our grief head-on the first time or the second time doesn't make these experiences any less painful, it does help us become more resilient. It prepares us for future losses, sets us up so that we're ready to process the emotions that come with them, and changes our relationship to those feelings as well. The more we grieve over time, the less fearful we become of those negative or unwanted emotions like despair, anger, confusion, uncertainty, and the more we start to embrace them, to recognize how helpful it can be to get those emotions out of our system, and to acknowledge that these emotions are normal, are warranted, and are just a sign that our mind is doing its job and is trying to find a way forward. As C.S. Lewis opens with at the start of his book, A Grief Observed, no one ever told me that grief feels so like fear. That is to be expected. Not only are you facing the fear of the unknown, but the fear of having to essentially start afresh, to lead a life that's been forever altered, return to a landscape that feels forever foreign amidst an absence. But these feelings that come with grief, however painful, are not the problem. We can use this fear to chart a new course or find a way out of our loss. Ignoring them, however, is what keeps us feeling stuck. To that point, joining me now is Malika Sharma, Director of Bespoke Learning Solutions here at Workplace Options, who will share with us a bit more about what it feels like to experience grief, why it's important to do so, and will offer some tips on how people can rethink their relationship with grief moving forward. Hi, Malika. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi. So to start us off, in my introduction, I talk a bit about how people can have a very narrow-minded or limited view of what causes grief. Um, I think similarly, people can also have a very narrow-minded view of what grief can look like. Um, I was wondering if maybe you could speak to me about some of the common symptoms that are associated with grief, both psychological and physical, um, and if you happen to know, maybe some of the lesser-known symptoms of grief as well. You're right. Grief can be caused by many kinds of losses. It can take many forms and can have many symptoms, some of which are more common than the others. Uh, you know, maybe I classify the symptoms into different buckets. And let's look at some of the physical symptoms would be things like dryness of the mouth, 
tightness of the chest or the throat, you know, dizziness, breathlessness, a feeling of butterflies in the stomach, or, you know, this feeling of a huge hole in my stomach, or, or just a loss of energy or even a loss of sexual desire. The emotional symptoms are more uh, like numbness and shock or yearning, sadness, guilt, even anger, loneliness, maybe fatigue, helplessness. But sometimes it could also be a sense of re relief. It really depends on the relationship one has with the person one has lost or what the loss is. It, the behavioral symptoms would be like crying, or sighing, searching endlessly, indecisiveness, inability to sleep, forgetfulness, isolating yourself, withdrawing socially, uh, having some mood swings. And then there could be cognitive symptoms which, you know, distort your thinking, you're in denial, or confusion, uh, the feeling that you may be going crazy, you're having hallucinations, or you're preoccupied by the deceased and constantly sensing that the other person is, is there in your presence. There could also be some spiritual symptoms like a loss of faith or an excessive engagement with faith or seeking comfort from faith or anger with a higher power or, you know, like a, a search, deeper search for meaning. Some of the not so common symptoms are intense sorrow, pain, Rumination over the loss of the love, loss of the loved one, uh, really an inability to focus on anything else besides the person one uh, one just lost. Uh, constantly focusing on the reminders of the loved person, excessive avoidance of uh, those reminders. For instance, I knew someone who who believed that her husband was still sitting at his normal place in the living room. And she still arranged for his cup of tea and snacks and newspaper to be given to him at a, the regular time. And this went on for a few years. And in another instance, a friend did not enter her mother's bedroom for several years after she passed on and left everything there as it was when her mother was alive. It's only after, you know, maybe five or six years that she actually went into that room. There are also sometimes feelings of self-blame which compensate for feelings of helplessness or powerlessness because the belief that it's my fault gives you an, you know, somewhat of an illusion of power. And another symptom could be that of survivor guilt. You know, why did I survive when the other person did not? Mm -hmm. You know, you know, going through, I guess, all of these different symptoms that can happen you know, I guess I'm curious to know what your take is on, you know, the five stages of grief um, or perhaps the new um, prolonged grief disorder diagnosis. You know, like, do you think that grief is something that can be categorized, like symptoms happen in a certain way or they all happen um, in a single person? Um, you know, do you feel as though the prolonged grief disorder diagnosis, I guess, is, you know, reinforcing this idea that grief has a time frame or that people should be able to you know, move on or get over it within six months to a year? See, grief is a natural response to loss. For most people, the symptoms of grief begin to decrease over a period of time. However, for a small group of people, the feeling of intense grief persists and the symptoms are pretty severe and interfere with their ability to live a meaningful life. 
I do like that five stages model of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, because it helps us understand and normalize the different emotions a person experiences after a loss. And really that's for any kind of loss. Uh, the prolonged grief disorder is also commonly known as complicated grief or a persistent complex bereavement disorder. For a diagnosis of this, the loss of a lo loved one should have occurred for at least a year for an adult and six months for a child or an adolescent, along with some other symptoms that have been defined. I do think that this may really be too short of a window to conclude that it is not normal. There is no timeline for grief and people grieve in their own unique ways and at their own pace. And not all grief that lasts longer than a year needs to be classified as a disorder or something that is not normal. Grief is very personal and maybe it's not okay for another to define what kind of grief is normal and what is not. Right, exactly. You know, that's a great point. And to that point, you know, do you think that grief ever really goes away? Um, you know, and if not, what are some of the key ways in which people, I guess, can maybe learn to live with grief for the long haul? Um, and perhaps how do they get it to improve um, and change over time? And maybe how does it perhaps change shape over time? So I like this quote from an anonymous source which says, you don't get over it, you get through it. It doesn't get better, it gets different. Mm -hmm. The grief never really goes away, but in the course of time, life starts taking over and the relative size of the grief reduces. But the grief always stays in some form, you know, a sense of loss, a memory, a wish, a remembrance, nostalgia, a dream, a thought that wouldn't it be nice if I, I could ask my father this? My mother used to make this dish for me, and so every time I make it, I feel sentimental. Right. So it's, uh, you know, it does improve over time. And if it doesn't improve over time for somebody, then they really do should get some professional help. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I do think it's interesting, though, that you talk about how, you know, grief can last the course of a lifetime, because I wonder, you know, why do you think it is that we then, as a society, are so reluctant or afraid to talk about grief? You know, why is it so stigmatized and unknown, even though it's such an integral and universal part of the human experience? So I think people in general are afraid of talking about all emotions. Uh, most people don't even have the vocabulary to talk about their feelings. They just don't know how to. In that backdrop, it becomes even harder to talk about something so personal and unique something that makes you cry and may make you feel weak. Uh, there is this myth that one needs to be strong, but grief breaks even the strongest amongst us sometimes. Another possible reason people don't talk about it may be because it reminds them of their own mortality and vulnerability. Right. You know, I do totally understand, you know, that fear of grief, but I am wondering, you know, what are perhaps maybe some lessons or advantages that could be gained if society created a space to, you know, really talk about and experience and explore our grief? Um, and I guess, you know, what are some ways in which people could work toward creating that space? So there are several support groups that do exist, and often people come to therapy to help deal with their grief. I think if society allowed for more grief conversations and sharing, 
people could normalize their grief experiences and also learn different coping mechanisms that may have worked for others. Uh, just by listening to how others cope through their grief can sometimes give you the courage to navigate your own grief more successfully. Because as I mentioned earlier, you can't go around it. You just have to go through it. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, in addition to that, I wanted to ask you, you know, why is it so important for people to be able to recognize and process their own grief, especially, you know, in this day and age? I think it's important because that's what helps them move through it. Uh, in the past, and this is true even uh, today in many cultures, it certainly is true in India, where I come from. Uh, when someone passes, the whole family, the extended family and the community come together to be with the bereaved. You know, there are lots of rituals that are performed and organizing all of that takes some doing. And then there is always somebody to talk to and share one's grief with because the sharing of grief uh, really helps lessen it. The bottom line is when people are let, not let, you know, nobody is really left alone in their grief. Now, that ability to grieve together got severely challenged during the pandemic, which is what made it so hard as people were left alone in their grief. Most societies, however, do not have this concept of communal grieving, and people are often isolated in their grief. Uh, in any case, societies are progressing towards being more individualistic, and that reduces the support people receive from being an integral part of a community, whatever that community may be. So people often grieve alone, and that means they need to understand their grief and learn how to go through it. I like this analogy of the whirlpool of grief. As the river of life flows, it drops off a cliff when there is a loss. And what gets generated at the bottom of that cliff is a whirlpool of grief and all its accompanying emotions. It's only once you get to the phase of acceptance of the reality of that loss does your river of life continue on its path. And sometimes we need help coming to that acceptance of that loss. Wow, I really love that. Um, you know, talking about, you know, getting to that path of um, uh, acceptance or that point of acceptance, um, you know, from your perspective, you know, what are some of the best practices that can help people, you know, stay in touch with their own feelings, including grief and process those feelings in, you know, a healthy and forward thinking way? Um, you know, and what separates feelings of grief from, you know, say those of depression or anxiety? So depression and anxiety are mental illnesses. You know, depression affects your mood, the way you understand yourself, the way you understand and relate to the things around you. Uh, depression can come up for no reason and it can la it lasts for a very long time. Uh, it's much more than just sadness or low mood. People often experience depression. Uh, you know, those who experience depression feel often feel worthless and helpless. Grief, on the other hand, is a response to a loss. And while some of the symptoms may be common, the triggers are different. And the sadness due to grief eventually diminishes over time. That's not the case with depression unless a person gets help for it and learns some scoping, coping skills. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, obviously, you know, like you said, grief is a very normal and common experience and people, you know, shouldn't feel ashamed about their grief. And a lot of the times, you know, it will go away on their own. 
Um, but research shows that it can also pose a serious um, and detrimental threat to their health um, if not processed or treated properly. So I guess my question is, you know, what are some signs that people should maybe be on the lookout for um, that might indicate that their grief is becoming a quote unquote problem um, that will need more professional treatment? Um, and what might that professional treatment look like? I think if the symptoms of their grief are dominating their thoughts and interfering in their ability to carry on with life in a way that was normal for them, even after a significant period of time, then they could definitely benefit from some help like grief counseling or joining a grief support group. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I guess is my final question, you know, do you see or believe that a shift will occur in our collective understanding of grief? Um, you know, and does or will that shift happen uh, collaboratively? Or is it also important for the individual to maybe assess and reconsider their own thoughts on grief? Um, you know, and what should listeners really take away from this podcast? You know, like, what are some of the questions they should ask themselves moving forward? Um, or I guess, what should they say to themselves moving forward when they witness grief, either in the people around them or in themselves? I think there is a collective shift even if slow and slight, in our understanding of all emotions, and grief is one of them. Now, over the last few years, people have faced a lot of loss with the pandemic, the war, the social unrest, and the natural disasters. Uh, so there is also a sense of collective loss. Uh, there are many, many people who are grieving, and sometimes grieving multiple losses. At such a time, it is important for each one of us to be more supportive of the other to listen, to be kind, and most importantly, be non-judgmental. Because we really don't know what the other person's inner world and inner turmoil is. And also to be kind to yourself and be accepting of your own emotional churn and turmoil. It is normal and it is okay to not be okay for some time. And it is okay to get help when you find that the flow of your river of life is obstructed for whatever reason. And with that concludes the end of our podcast on grief. Thank you so much to Malika for her time and her wonderful insights. And thank you so much to the listeners for tuning in. Take care.